0: You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host Al and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Okay, welcome back on the Golden Nuggets podcast, and today I've got Sam Woodell. How are you, Sam? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, and um, this episode I am really interested in because, one, I love philosophy and I'm very interested in theology, um, but I know very little about it, um, and hence why I'm going to chat to yourself as someone who is a... A, uh, an expert in in that field teaching the the next generation so um for the listeners can you just give us a little sort of insight into what your role is and, and what you've done yeah so i i'm i'm a classroom
1: teacher basically and I, I teach uh both religious studies and philosophy at a level i teach a little bit of religious studies uh, to younger kids as well at gcse um my background, I am not actually didn't originally train as a teacher. I kind of happened into the profession. But my, my background was studying philosophy and theology at university. So I kind of have come into this more from the direction of being interested in it as a subject rather than as a kind of career teacher. Although I have now been teaching for, I think this is my beginning of my 10th year now. So it it's, seems to have been a fair while anyway. What was it like at school for you, mate? Well, I... <laughs> I went to uh, Eton uh, College. I was in. Um, I was a college, so it was a pretty strange educational environment. Um, it quite intense. Uh, it was very academic. Uh, most of my cohort were very much being groomed to head towards Oxford or Cambridge. I originally was interested in sciences, um, particularly physics and maths. They were my kind of passion, but then. As I got older, I found increasingly, certainly when I was 17, 18, I began to find some of the questions I wanted to ask were ones that weren't well answered by those subjects. They were questions about value, um, they were questions about the origin of things, uh, questions about the meaning of things. And in science, normally the questions are much more about how things are. So I think, that kind of got me interested and I I was doing my kind of my I was doing an A level in religious studies, which in those days was mostly just philosophy and ethics. And that just really got my interest. And so when it actually came to university I found myself applying for those sorts of things. I mean I enjoyed school but it definitely was a weird experience and one that I suspect most students would not find much to relate to. I have to say I really Appreciated the fact that in my professional life I teach in a very different kind of environment. I teach in an environment where although we obviously have high expectations of our students we aren't aggressive in pushing them and we are much more interested in trying to bring up uh, rounded individuals rather than just being a grade factory pumping out the best grades we can get and getting the best university destinations we can get. Um, although it kind of suited me, I think that sort of process can be quite cruel and even uncaring at times. What is success for you, mate? That's a really good question. I, uh, my wife, uh, when I had my, we had our first kid and my wife, uh, we were driving back from the hospital and she turned to me and she said, um, I really hope, uh, she's ambitious, you know, not like you. Um, which was yeah hard not to take personally. Um, I think I am ambitious. Actually, I, I'm intellectually ambitious. I, I definitely want to understand things, um, but I'm not very. You know, I've I've never been that attracted by money. Uh, really, I you know I've, I've obviously wanted financial stability. There's, there's nothing worse than being broke. Um, but I never really. That was never really a big thing. I really enjoy what I do at the moment. I mean, actually talking to young people, getting them interested in in stuff I'm passionate about, and also having them push me. Um, This last year in particular, actually, I've had a couple of students who really have made me much better at what I do and and made me much better in terms of my subject too, and and that's wonderful. Uh, I look at some friends of mine who've kind of gone down the academic route, and I sort of feel very fortunate that I kind of, what I get to do in philosophy and R S and theology is quite fun. Engaging with young people, talking about these ideas, is quite fun. I don't have to worry, you know. I'm not sort of trying to kind of carve some corner of academia out for myself. So I, I don't know what success, if this fits with the definition of success, but I, I'm pretty content where I am. Um, I I really enjoy my day to day, and I. Don't have much ambition to shift that around. Having said that, within my role, I have expanded that. Um, when I started, I was just teaching RS. I've, the philosophy A level is something I launched at the school. I mean, I didn't launch philosophy A level, but but at the school, uh, I now run the school's debating teams. I've helped launch Model UN. So I've I've done. Th- you know. So I think there is scope to be ambitious within the role rather than trying to find the next rung on some kind of prescribed ladder
0: of you know being a head of year or a deputy head or anything like that sure um it's interesting you say about like accountability um like ch- like especially pupils holding you accountable and challenging you to make you a better teacher yeah. um it's sort of like it's in in my opinion it's sort of flipped um the sort of expectations now of you know who's the one being hold, held accountable in the lesson rather than it traditionally used to be the, the children and, and and the teacher standing at the front them sort of mainly dictating you know where the direction of your studies is going whereas now it's very much actually look this is the curriculum but where do you want to go yeah um, and maybe that has led to like a rise of entrepreneurs and and uh very creative you know Young millennials and, and Gen Ys, but um, I suppose for me, how has it evolved? From, I mean, what was Eton actually like, mate? Because very few people go there, yeah. and it's quite interesting that you mentioned that because I think actually there's not really much in the papers about what Eaton's actually like, and yeah. very few people that give a first hand experience about it. So, what was it like for you, sort of, you know, in the in the later stages of the school life?
1: Yeah, I mean, just to... to Obviously, for some context, this was 20 years ago, and, and obviously the, the school now may be a very different place. It was... It's a strange environment. There was an awful lot of elitism in the sense that I think we were constantly being told, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of special, we're going to do really well, you know, the world's our oyster. And this kind of overweening sense that, you know, we were kind of entitled to kind of go out and make what we would of the world. Um, with that came, I think, a certain intolerance of... I mean, I think Eton was good at celebrating difference in some respects, I think pretty poor at celebrating difference in others. I was in College House, which is the scholarship house, so there was more diversity there. Um, there were people who were there having their school fees completely paid uh, for them, They you know so uh, people who came from very different backgrounds... Um, I my feeling is is the the kids who did come from the much poorer backgrounds did have a harder time integrating because it was it was a world where a lot of people had a lot of money and a lot of privilege um, so that was difficult. The uniform is odd. I mean, I, I you know it looks odd to the outside, but it's pretty weird to wear it too. Um, you do feel like you're in a bubble. It's this uh, the geography of it is this tiny little town just over the river from Windsor so you kind of separate it off from the rest of the world it's really insular within kind of Eton town pretty much everything that exists exists kind of in relationship to the school in some way and then other than that it's surrounded by fields um, I think most students you kind of you either buy into it in a big way or you kick against it and I think I was probably more in the kick against it category um, having said that, you know it's it's a school that had a long tradition of people who kind of kicked against it. I mean, you know, George Orwell went there as a student, um, and in a way, you were celebrated for doing that. I had a very good housemaster, a man called Spence, who I believe is now headmaster of Dulwich, and he was very he was very good at letting those of us who maybe were slightly square pegs, uh, you know, not trying to force us too much through round holes um i mean but at the same time you know some of the, it was also an incredible educational experience in my final year i think i'm right in saying that maybe with one exception every single one of my teachers had a doctorate in the subject they were teaching me and so the education was fantastic uh the facilities were fantastic you know our theater had a i was did a lot of technical stuff in the theater i was a stage manager and sound and lighting and all of that and we had you know basically a fully functioning theatre with, you know, stage and with a lift and workshops and a full lighting rig and sound, a sound booth. So it was, there were huge opportunities there. Um, what was religious studies like there, mate? Uh, well, I had uh, I had a couple of very good teachers, I think, uh, in religious studies. You really got me passionate about it. Um, one of whom... Uh, it's actually uh, it's now one of the sort of... He's an examiner for one of the exam boards, one of the chief examiners for one of the exam boards uh, in religious studies and, and still, I think, is a teacher. They must be pretty close to retirement now. And he was the head of RS there. He was a very interesting man. He got me very interested in all sorts of things. Um, he gave me my first uh, copy of David Hume, who you know, was probably the the greatest philosophical influence, one of the things that got me really interested in philosophy. He got me really Nietzsche. He also got me really interested in in Christianity. I mean I'm not a believer, but I'm very much a sort of I'm very interested in Christianity. I'm sort of considering myself maybe a bit of a fellow traveller with Christianity in that I do think, you know, existence can be puzzling and difficult, particularly for adolescents, which is you know, one of the reasons I enjoy teaching R.S. and philosophy so much, and I think there are no obvious and easy answers to the difficulties of just existing. Um, I think Christianity's a pretty decent attempt at finding a meaningful answer. So I've always been interested in it, even though I've never been a been a Christian myself. So he also got me interested in that, and he was the first person to really get me to think about the Bible in terms of text. And then I had another very good teacher who was. Um, he was ex-military. He'd been, a, uh, he'd been a padre in the army in the Falklands. Um, if you watch Falkland documentaries every now and again, not that I, I do very much, but if you see them every now and again, he pops up. Um, uh, he was, a, I think he gave the funeral at Goose Green. And he was a ferocious man. Um, really, really discipline orientated, very scary. And he let me get away with murder. And I never understood why. But I was kind of, for some reason, I was sort of always exempted from from his kind of reign of terror. I think because he, I think because I was interested and I was engaged and looking back now as a teacher, you sort of realise how much you value those students who are interested and engaged and how maybe you are more willing to let them bend the rules a little bit, so long as you kind of keep them on side. But he also was very instrumental in kind of getting me to start to take RS seriously as a subject um, and think of it as more than just kind of, you know, learning Bible stories, which is what it had been when I was young. I mean,
0: in this country in particular, there has been sort of, I call it the rise of the Jedis, and it's, it's the rise of the non-religious, you know, who maybe decide to... Um, see themselves as either an agnostic or an atheist or something which is far left field of of, of the, the actual Jedi, which is a religion which you can put down on the census, um, which may sound quite baffling. But to, to be honest, it's interesting the fact that there is, especially in the Western world, which has reasonable sort of tertiary education, there is a growing number of people that are, maybe uh, perceived as being quite sceptical or cynical of religion and the effect that it has around the world on different areas. Um, I I personally don't have an opinion, but it's interesting to sort of read up about certain articles around this. Um, How do you think um, religion affects people in terms of... You've mentioned values previously. Yeah, I mean... Look, any belief system, I mean,
1: religion is a sort of a fairly obvious belief system, or tends to be fairly obvious belief systems, they're be written very large, but I think any belief system has with it certain dangers. I think in Europe, and in particular in Britain, I would suggest we, we are in a rather strange place that we are quite secular. Um, for a long time now, for many people, religion has kind of almost felt like an optional thing. You, you can live in society, but whether or not you choose to identify as Christian or not is a kind of lifestyle choice. And I, that kind of very oh, dare I say, kind of milk toast Christianity, this kind of sort of Church of England, very anodyne, almost, you know, I, I go to church, I get my children christened, I we married in front of a priest, these kinds, that kind of Christianity. I think you know, when there's some sort of new atheist movement, people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens came along, I think a lot of, you know, that it was quite easy to kind of be, be dismissive of that sort of Christianity because it felt rather wet and rather empty. And then, you know, sort of the kind of hard nosed scientism of someone like Dawkins seemed rather attractive. It seemed like, you know, here was someone who, who knew where it was at and kind of knew what he was talking about. Um, Having said that, I think for a lot of people, and particularly I think this is this is true of, of, first of all, immigrant communities that come with a very strong religious background, and also for an increasing group of people who have a very evangelical uh, conversion into religion, whether that's Christianity or Islam or whatever, I think increasingly people are turning back now to religion as quite a serious alternative to... Uh, a kind of secular existence. I think it's a real challenge to know how far secularism and religion, where they rub up against each other. I think there's an awful lot of kind of... There are areas of conflict. Um, you know, as an RS teacher, a school, you know, a school I teach, is not really much of an issue. But certainly, you know, the one of the kind of classic problems RS teachers face is when someone says something that, out of context, could be seen as pretty discriminatory or hurtful, um, but then comes at it from the perspective of religion. I've had moments like this. In fact, uh, a few years ago, I I taught a kid from a Catholic background, a French Catholic background, and this, this kid was part of my debate club, and they expressed a view that they thought gay couples shouldn't be able to adopt because, in their view the family unit kind of ordained by god was should be a, a man and a woman and while he, this student accepted that maybe gay couples should be allowed to marry as a principle of equality they felt that a child should always be a you know, should always be in, in that kind of traditional family unit of a male and female now most of the other students disagreed, as, as did I. But I think what was interesting is how a how lot of the other students felt really threatened by that. And I even had some other students suggest that this person shouldn't be allowed to come to debate club anymore because their view was somehow completely horrific and what they'd said shouldn't have been said and they shouldn't have to be a member of a club where someone held this view. And that kind of antagonism between sort of secular views and religious views, I think that's becoming more and more pronounced uh, in some quarters, and that worries me. one of the things I, I do really try and do in terms of teaching RS and teaching philosophy is try to provide a framework by which people can better tolerate points of view they don't like. Um, I think there is, I think... How do you do that? How do you facilitate that? Uh, so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, what part of it is by, uh, in class, always having this attitude whenever someone ex- sort of expresses a view. And, and, and I wouldn't do this, incidentally, for younger kids, because I think younger kids need much more support and, and they sort of take risks to heart. But the older kids, whenever they express a view, pretty much about anything, I, I will, I, my practice is to be fairly challenging through questions. And so that means I will often adopt a position. And I think as I do it so much and so frequently, the kids just come to accept it. And they don't, if I adopt a position that, you know, is maybe one uh, that they know that doesn't necessarily mean I hold it. But I, by doing that, I kind of, there is this idea, and I do try and drill this into them, that, you know, within the context of religious studies or philosophy, the kind of, I don't like that, is not really a legitimate argument. If you disagree with something, I the idea is we want reasons, and particularly I would say within philosophy. If you can't provide reasons, then you you don't get to play the game. Um, but I think you know that what's interesting is within religion. I mean, if you want to, if you think in terms of energy and connection, I think most religions would argue that that state of kind of openness between two people, I suppose, the religious perspective. At least certainly, the many religions would have this perspective: is that openness is available, not just between people, but between you and reality at its most fundamental level. And I think, you know, speaking as an atheist, I don't believe this, but I think that's the promise of something like Christianity: is that at its most fundamental level, the universe is orientated towards you in an attitude of love, and if you can open that connection up, then you will kind of ground yourself and your life will suddenly make sense and you'll be able to do incredible things. And I think at its best, Christianity does that. I remember listening to a remarkable, which I was actually played to my students, a remarkable series of interviews that were on Radio 4 years ago. Um, I think it was a PM programme. And uh, with a doctor, a British doctor, who volunteered by going to Syria during the worst of the civil war. And would work in very very dangerous situations, and the stories this doctor told were just hair-raising. You know, kind of ankle deep in people's blood, hiding in basements, trying to keep people alive while the bombs rained in around them. And it was never mentioned. Like three hours of interviews in total. It never really mentioned. At the very end, the interviewer said, "You know, how do you how do you do it? How do you make yourself go back?" And, and this guy said, "Well, you know, I I believe in God, and I think." There probably I couldn't imagine another answer that would go there. I I can't imagine doing that. I for me that's not possible. The, you know I have a wife and kids and I don't believe that there's anything after this. For me, what this guy was doing was exquisitely reckless, and yet he did it. And I think he did it because he had this relationship to the universe that I lack. This is what Kierkegaard called faith. This sort of idea that actually the most profound level the universe loves you. I think that's a very powerful idea. And although it's not one I share, I think it's you know, that what I sort of feel like, you know, when I see Richard Dawkins standing in front of the bus with the advert saying, you know, there probably is no God, now get on and enjoy life. I sort of think, well bully for you that you can do that. But for a lot of people that's that's not possible. Mm. You know Do you believe I'm, that anything is possible? I <laughs> There's a nice, uh, there's a nice uh, Terry Pratchett quote, which was, uh, you know, if you believe anything is possible, try striking a match on jelly. But that kind of, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that kind of sort of silly answer aside. Yeah, I, I think we we're definitely, I think in general human beings are more generally underestimate what they're capable of. I think most of us could push harder. Most of us could do better. Um, I think. My and again, this is you know just my view, but the the biggest barrier I think most of the students I teach face is their own self image that they students have this very often have this very sort of particular idea of who they are, and they let that get in the way of what they might become um I suspect I do that with myself too, hence my wife's claim that I'm not very ambitious but
0: but'. You know. <laughs> It's interesting, though, because there's I think you mentioned like the kids like challenging you. And um, I think that's probably the most powerful thing, though, that as a teacher, you sort of think always like, okay, I know what I know, but there's obviously an awful lot I don't know. And the only way I'm going to figure that out is by just constantly challenging myself by getting people that have no agendas but purely just to challenge me, and actually, are okay with challenging me, because there's no agenda for them, and they're—I wouldn't say reckless, but there's no limits, there's no parameters, no barriers, there's nothing holding back, and I quite like to go there. Um, I always go like I'm going to go nth degree, and that's sort of like a phrase that I use, and it's just because I just want to keep going and keep going. I don't want anyone to just say. No, we can't go. Yeah, through.
1: I mean, I think my first couple of years of teaching, I was I, they were terrified of two things, both of which, looking back now, are really silly. One was saying I don't know to a student. I instinctively thought, well, if I don't know it, then I've kind of failed the student. And so I would, <laughs> I had, I'd have, the, yeah, I know, which is just stupid. Um, I mean, also, what terrible behaviour to model to a student, to sort of shy away from probing those areas you don't know i mean we should be modeling the exact opposite behavior but i was scared of that i was you know I'd, I'd got the type of school i'd gone to the type of education i'd had the type of university i'd gone to there was great currency in knowing stuff in, in being one step ahead of other people and there was almost a kind of shame in saying you know i don't know and i'm very relaxed about saying it now particularly in front of kids i still with some of my university friends I will still sometimes, if they say something, I'll nod along sagely, as I know exactly what they're talking about, <laughs> while at the same time thinking when can I get to my phone and Google that, because um, and it does, it's, so I do kind of, you know, I, I think do, what know, honestly, I, was I
0: honestly think that comes from the older generation there. and i tell you I, the reason why I say that is because well, I won't mention who they are, but they're elderly gentlemen who, um, people I know on a personal level, rather than Nothing to do with work, but um they'll say something with such confidence, and i'm like oh yeah that 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 must be true and then I'll be like, um, I'm not quite sure, and so I'll go on my phone and I'll google it, and it's most of the time it's not true, and then I'll go, mm, yeah, it's weird that because I just had a look at Google, and they go it's, it's not really exactly completely right you know I'm going to be quite sensitive with them because I don't want to completely destroy them because you know they're elderly and you're meant to respect your elders and all the rest of it and then they'll go well you know um they get very defensive and I'm like wow that's so that's what I'm saying like the model behaviors of what we've been brought up with is then ultimately what and hence why like being vulnerable now is great for the kids that we're bringing up because they'll realize that you know, information's... You know, you can get information off Google. Like, the exam system is all that nonsense, is yeah. Regurgitating
1: information. Which is why I, mean, I, I think it is it is so important that we, you know, increasingly we push it beyond that. I mean, I think, you know, the, it's that synthesising information. I mean, I, the exam system is, as you said, it's bizarre. One of the major things we're testing is information recall, which is...
0: <laughs> I'll do that on my phone, a, but,
1: mate. It, but it's just not a particularly useful skill. I mean... You know, it's great. It's it's lovely to be the. You know, I I have a I have a good memory for for things I read, um, and that's great. It's sort of fun, and I you know I kind of it helps me sort of organize things in my head. But at the same time, it's not really an, an essential life skill. Being able to do stuff with information, being able to sort of synthesize knowledge, make good judgments about knowledge. I mean, one of the things I find sort of slightly concerning about young people and maybe this is an overreaction on my part but they are have so much information you know they're so wired into things but they seem very very bad at making good judgments about the quality of that information or the use of that information Um, I do find it extraordinary how much kids will believe something And then when you kind of probe, well, how do they know that? Why do they believe that? And it really often does come back to, you know, someone said it on social media, but there seems to be something about the fact that it goes round and therefore it must have some, it acquires its aura of truth. And I often like, well, if, if someone, just some random stranger came up to you, someone you barely knew and told you this sort of bizarre fact, would you accept it? And I think the answer is generally no, but because it comes packaged in this kind of digital format, it gives it a credence so one of the things i'm very interested in trying to to do particularly in the philosophy and, and r s side of, of things is make them better at critically evaluating information but i think we need to start doing that younger to be honest i think by the time they're sort of 16 17 we've we've missed a big opportunity to educate children as as to how to use all of this information available to them in a sensible how would way. you how would you do it with
0: your Child. yeah it's a really
1: i mean this is a really good question it's sort of funny watching my daughter grow up you know she's just about uh the oldest one's just about to turn six and so you know youtube has sort of started to become a bit of a light like you know today in fact we were we were reading um seo trot it was a you know the roald dahl book and she immediately like you know we finished it tonight and she was like well can can i can you show me a video of a tortoise it's so weird when i was a kid you know you didn't you didn't finish a book and then immediately like look up a video. But that's her world, right? She wants to see a video of a tortoise. And then she wanted to see if she could find a video of someone riding a tortoise, which sad to say you can, um, on the internet. But <laughs> either way, there's and yeah, so she has access to all this from a very young age. It's a really good question, what I'm gonna do.
0: Who with was that. riding a tortoise? What was what was going on? Is it a cartoon or is it it's, actually, it's a it's right? a cartoon, sadly. Uh, well, oh, no, right. good.
1: Uh, yeah. No, there's no
0: one there's not some sort of
1: tourist on a <laughs>
0: Galapagos tortoise.
1: You know, well hey. Uh no. Um
0: Who was riding the
1: tortoise? It was like a sort of fairy a fairy, a fairy Yeah, my a my YouTube YouTube thinks that I'm really into fairies. Um YouTube. <laughs> my my YouTube feed it's it's half kind of like weird maths videos and half fairies. So that's uh, that's good. Um but yeah she... You know, but uh, yeah, it's a really good question. I, it's really important, I think. You know, when I was a kid, one of the sort of things that we we were told, you know, at a certain stage, you should start like reading a newspaper or at least reading a bit of your dad's newspaper. Even if it's, you know, only the sports pages or the entertainment pages, you kind of get this idea that there is this resource out there that's to be trusted. And then, you know, I remember kind of, age sixteen seventeen moving into my sixth form, and it was like, we had an opportunity at school to order our own paper, and so actually deciding to do that. And, you know, I remember sort of, you know, the first paper I ever ordered was The Times, because that's what my dad read. So I was like, okay, I'll get I'll get a copy of The Times. And then I, I briefly, because I was 17, and, you know, obstreperous, I briefly became communist, um, and so started ordering The Socialist Worker, um, which was, was less good. Um, I, so, that, but, you know, there was this idea of a sort of, place you could go i don't really know with kids today i mean i try and promote wikipedia to my students um, because it has footnotes and it introduces them to the idea of footnotes and then i say here's how you follow a footnote now when you click on the footnote where does that take you and then you can kind of evaluate the source like that so i'm i'm a big fan of wikipedia i know not all teachers are but i think it's a really good way to teach students about what kind of referenced research writing looks like and how to check it how to hold it to account but i think the reality is and increasingly a lot of our students their primary access to the world does come through algorithmic feeds of one form or another you know facebook youtube um tiktok instagram This is kind of their primary and they might well read a news article from the BBC or the Guardian or the Daily Mail, but they will have got there through a social media feed, which means their
0: access to the world, I think, for a lot of students is highly curated. Well, actually, this leads on to a really good question that I got from one of the students. So um, one of the questions was, are we free self-directing beings or just following a predetermined process?
1: Wow <laughs> so, that's a big question. Um, I, so there's a lot of debate about this. Uh, I think my view for what it is worth it, it, if you if by a free, self-directing creature you mean that genuinely our actions are unknowable to others in advance so from a god's eye view let's say some god or demon or supercomputer had all the information about my brain and me and my situation if by free you mean completely unpredictable even to something with perfect knowledge then no i don't think we're free i think our actions can be completely explained in terms of physical causes, like everything else in the universe, we are part of the process. However, I do not think that means that our actions don't matter. I do not think that means we're not responsible for our actions. And I do not think that means that we are determined or we are kind of trapped in you know, some kind of iron cage of causation. Um,
0: do you feel free? Yes,
1: absolutely. And I and I think, so I, the position I hold is something in, in the philosophical literature called compatibilism. Um, I would suggest that freedom is not about being able to have done otherwise, being able to have broken the laws of the universe. You know, I, I went left, but I could physically have gone right. I think that's probably not true. We, we, if, if we turned left, we were probably physically always going to turn left.
0: So sliding doors doesn't really
1: exist? No, I do Well, I mean, who knows? I, the, my, my feeling is probably not at, at, the, at the level of, you know, the kind of macro level of a human being. But I think what we mean by freedom is the distinction between those actions for which I can give reasons and those actions for which I can't. So a nice example I always think is the difference between a dive and being knocked over in a game of football, right? Why do we hold the person who dives responsible Because the only reason they ended up on the ground is because they had that intention to end up on the ground. The person gets knocked over, got knocked over. They had no intention. I think that's all we need for freedom. I think these deeper worries about the nature of physics and reality are a bit of a red herring. However, it's not obvious that they are. I understand why people feel this problem. Um, I would suggest, I think if anyone is... You know, anyone out there is really interested in, in in kind of trying to understand this sort of view of of compatibilism, um, then just Google David Hume's compatibilism and, and have a read of that. I think Hume, who's probably the the first great compatibilist, gives a really decent fist of it. And he basically will argue that well, his his argument is that liberty does not require kind of absolute freedom. Liberty just requires that we can act. On the basis of reasons that are our own. And that's all we need. Um, So I would say we are at liberty. But we're not absolutely free. In the sense that say. I don't
0: know. the sense I suspect the question was asked in. Um, And that means I think we are responsible. For what we do. Okay so moving from that though. Here's another one which might link it slightly. How much of life is nature versus nurture? Um. My dad always tells me everything is
1: uh, nature. Um, I'm not quite sure why he's he's so convinced that his genes are what shaped me rather than his him, him bringing me up. Um, perhaps, I don't know. I don't know what that says. Um, I I think the distinction is slightly artificial, but I do think genetics is you know genetics is, is very telling. We are just variations on theme uh we're all just variations on a theme you know we we are incre- every single one of us is incredibly sim- similar you know we all get angry we all laugh we all move in a certain way we all you know get nutrition from the same kinds of food so from a you know if you're an alien landing on this planet you would probably see as much distinction between human beings as we see when we look at a flock of sheep right i mean there's so nature is huge like nature's shape gives us shape in terms of our, our genetic reality but we don't tend to be interested in the fact that we all eat you know protein rather than glass say and we don't seem particularly interested in the fact that we all get angry we start to really focus in on these minute differences between someone who gets angry appropriately and someone who gets angry angry inappropriately um in terms of that those mild differences those tiny differences that really exist between us um i think nature probably probably plays a leading role that'd be my my deeply uninformed view how much do you think i think we uh, i don't know we we don't know
0: i wouldn't want to quantify it i I mean i think (laughs) but if you uh, were to put a percentage on it what would you say if you had to own that i
1: i mean I would say prob- I, I' say if you kind of would list all traits of a human being and you were to ask what percentage is just genetically kind of responsible primarily genetically what is upbringing, i mean i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna probably be somewhere between sixty and seventy percent genetic i would imagine i I think you know we we underestimate how much our genes change us because like I said we're looking for the minute differences between ourselves and we forget the fact that we're so similar, the vast majority of our behaviour is always going to be
0: changed. It's interesting you say that, right? So there's a guy yeah. called Daniel Fujiwara who I had on I think he's episode nine. And he basically he's a doctorate in well being, very bright guy. And yeah. he reckons that your well being can be manipulated by up to forty percent. And he's spent his life researching this over lots of different demographics of people, lots of different industries and in the wo- and he measured it from a try to quantify it from a financial output and productivity for for certain financial businesses and then obviously from the service sector in terms of the providing the service. So you say 60 to 70%. That's pretty similar to the manipulation of 40% through your own well-being by now not, not necessarily always because obviously you know your personality could change and your emotions and stuff like that but there's a percentage there's definitely a percentage that you can control. So with good education, obviously, like when you go to sleep, how much sleep you get, what pillows you have, um, what food you put in your your mouth, how much you exercise, um, whether you do something creative. And these are all factors that he he considered in terms of like, if you did these things, there would be a financial contribution to the company and to your own life as well. Yeah. Um and so I suppose for me, it's, it's interesting you say that, but 70% is, or 60%, you know, whatever you want to go with. It's, it's still, you're pretty nearly like, not predetermined completely, but like, if I was going to say, be born again, I'd probably be a teacher if I had the same upbringing <laughs> regardless. Do you know what I mean? Like
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I do think about this. I sort of, um, you know, I think, you know, I was, I was probably, I, this is, yeah, I, I would imagine if, if if I ran my life again it would be it would be similar in many regards having said that I do think you know I uh, like so in, in recent years I have started to take much more exercise than I used to and I have tried to start to eat better than I used to and you know I gave up smoking which I, I smoked for years and um, but I went through a lot of changes very quickly because i also the year I started teaching was the year well, was a year later I got married and I had kids so looking back on my 20s that it's I, you know I'm a very, very different person from who I was in my twenties. I mean there is it's is genuinely hard to draw a line between the two. Um, and I would say my emotional landscape has changed pretty profoundly too. But then it's difficult to know would I always have had that kind of that kind of yeah, that kind of transition around that age? I mean I, I think in my twenties it's fair to say I was not very comfortable with with who I was. Um, I think I was, you know, I was really casting around for some sort of sense of, of, of who I was, and, and I found that in my thirties. Who knows? Maybe in my forties I'll, I don't know, become a skydiver or a <laughs> garbage man. I
0: mean, yeah. who knows?
1: Yeah.
0: How do you think? So, there's the last two questions I've got here. Is um, yeah. how has teaching theology changed in the last few years, if at all? I mean, for A-level hugely because we've had this A-level reform uh, and it's a bit boring, it's a bit technocratic
1: but uh, the reality is we used, RS used to be philosophy of religion and ethics now a third of it is pretty detailed um, study of a religion and at the moment we do Christianity we're about to shift to Buddhism um, I hope, fingers crossed uh, I'm very keen for just to, to shift to Buddhism because I think it's Kids have already do a lot of Christianity, and I think in a very secular school, Buddhism is probably a little more philosophically interesting for many of them. I think a lot of kids really can't get over the whole Bible thing. They, you know, they they find the I meant to sort of when we're studying a religion that believes in this kind of first century resurrecting Palestinian. I think they find that very difficult. So in that sense, it's changed a lot uh, for me at least. I mean, some schools always did religion and religious studies, but but in our school and and. It was really the philosophy and ethics, so we've now got this whole new religion component i My view is it's better now that although the transition was difficult and the first year was felt pretty pretty bad actually, now we've kind of gotten the swing of it 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 allows us to have all sorts of conversations we didn't have before about God and faith and why people are religious and what that means and you know i i our students say. It, they're going into a world where a lot of people, faith is a big part of their lives. Um, so I hope we're doing a good job in preparing them for that and getting them to think about that and getting them really genuinely to be tolerant of that, to not see their lack of faith as antagonistic. I think, I suppose, what what I really, you know, one of the really nice things about having religion in the RS again is that it teaches them to be curious about it. And I kind of, and I've got a, a very close friend of mine whose dad, in the nicest possible ways, is is pretty sort of hardcore Islamophobic. Like talking to him is is really hard work. Um, he you know he knows I'm an RS teacher, so whenever I sort of I see him, and because we he's a very this is a very old friend of mine, so I know his dad quite well, and um, it's 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 kind of pretty tough sometimes. And I respect his dad and in, in every other respect he's he's an interesting and, and well informed guy. But it's pretty tough. But the thing that makes me sad is he he's so you know, he learns everything he can about Islam. But it would I don't think it would ever occur to him to actually talk to a Muslim and ask. And that's what I really want is I really want to try and engender this this idea of curiosity so that when these kids do encounter people of faith, they don't feel like it's something they kinda of can't mention and oh, that's weird and different and I'm not gonna you know i'm just going to ignore it at best or fear it at worst and instead actually enter into that with a kind of curiosity and ask questions you know what does that mean why why do you think that how does that shape your life um so i think that's been a really good thing uh that change i think
0: that's that's a good thing about well for me i i send my two kids to um the local state primary and my boys probably i would say not in the minority as being a, a a white Caucasian boy, but he's definitely not the majority anymore. Um, in his cricket team, he is the only white kid there, and uh, there's a big sort of Sikh Muslim community there, and they've just been lovely. Every they're always sort of saying, "Oh, hello, Grant," you know, and how are you? And they come around, they give me curries, and the, you know, some of them are giving me the Sikhs are giving me some beers, and they're just so friendly. But what's really nice is the fact that. He's exposed to all of those religions from a, a community perspective, but also from a teach, from a teaching perspective. Because they have to learn about all of those religions um, and respect them and then the types of food that they, they have because and when they go around to people's houses, he tries all sorts because, you know, they're all from different parts of the world, which is the best thing probably about, about London in that sense. Yeah, um, and I think that's I think it, you know, RS does have a big role to play there. So that's been that's been really nice. I think uh, just the last question before we go on to some sort of golden nuggets is, are there any young philosophers that have brought new ways of thinking in recent years?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good, that's a very good question. I mean, no one pays attention to young philosophers. You've got to gotta, gotta be a bit older. In terms of contemporary philosophers um, who, who are saying something interesting, there's a guy actually at the moment who's uh, a Goth who's recently published a book arguing for panpsychism, the idea that everything everything has a properties of mind. So like even like hydrogen atoms have some consciousness. And that's been quite interesting and, and caused a bit of a stir. I think the big thing at the moment that is beginning to change is, you know, philosophy's had a terrible Problem in terms of representation. It is a very white male subject. I mean, really embarrassingly so. Um, And so, increasingly, you know, kind of some of the philosophers of uh, who you know, of the generation of kind of older than me, people I would look up to. I think you've got some really strong female voices now. So one of my very favourite philosophers is Christine Korsgaard, who's a Kant scholar, and I just think her writings are wonderful. Uh, in animal ethics recently there's uh, a woman called Cora Diamond who's really challenged so the big kind of dog in animal ethics is a guy called Peter Singer who some people might have heard of and Cora Diamond is, is a very recent figure who's really challenged uh, kind of Singer's views um, and actually in the philosophy A-level we also study uh, who I, someone I wasn't familiar with until I started teaching this A-level a woman called uh, Linda Zagzebski, whose whose works I've I've really got into reading, so I think yeah I think you know probably one of the big changes in philosophy at the moment, at least in the bit of philosophy I do, I do what's called analytic philosophy, um, and the bit of philosophy I'm interested in is we're getting more diverse voices, and so that's been a big change. And I think philosophers have always said, oh well, it's, you know, this is universal truth, so it doesn't matter who's speaking um, because it's universal, right? it just so happens that everyone speaking is looks pretty similar and sounds pretty similar um and i think it's a it's been a really exciting time that we're beginning to see women come through and we're beginning to see people from different backgrounds different ethnic backgrounds coming through the ranks and making contributions i recently read uh, so part of our drive to kind of try and diversify the curriculum, I've been recently reading some kind of religious really philosophy around uh, African proverbs, Yoruba proverbs, and also a wonderful book called On the Post-Colony by Achille Membe, which has been very interesting too. And again, thinking about these so-called universal themes from a very different perspective, in the case of On the Post-Colony, from a you know, post-colonial African perspective, has been really interesting uh, and changed a lot of my or challenged a lot of my ideas in a very productive way.
0: I suppose it's one thing I want to sort of wrap this up with, and it might be a question as a parent, uh, you sat down with your 16-year-old or your 18-year-old, and you're like, okay, so why are we going to study theology and or philosophy at A-level or at university? How is it going to help me get into the job market? Or yeah. how is it going to help me be happier in my life.
1: I mean, I think two slightly and, different questions.
0: And and so so those so those are the things I think that if you're a parent, if you've got a kid of that of that age, where you're about to go to university, you're going to drop fifty grand going there. Yeah. You don't want you don't want to have to resit that because you certainly yeah. don't want to have and you certainly don't want to give it up during and then have to pay it all back. Yeah. Um, and even if you do finish it, you're like, okay, I'm not going to use it, but. It's going to improve my overall well-being and it'll probably make me better decisions later on. Yeah. So those are the thoughts that I'm going with. But if we, if we can summarise it in terms of some golden nuggets as to why you might choose it and what are the reasons for doing it. OK, so yeah, so
1: I might just divide up theology and philosophy a little bit. Um, so I'll, I'll start with theology. I think with theology, in terms of employability... I think it's like any other serious humanity, like history. Uh, That's not something you need to necessarily worry about too much Um, because you are learning to deal with text, you are learning to construct critical arguments, uh, you're learning to do research, you're learning to weigh up points of view. And at the end of the day, many of these careers out there just want a graduate degree they're not terribly interested in what you did we're not like some countries like australia so i think that concern aside but why would you want to do theology theology records humanity's grappling with those kinds of concerns that's what theology really is i mean yes the you know god looms very large but really it's about humans grappling with their place in existence that's what theology to me is about. So I, my feeling is if you're the kind of person who, who feels that tug, then theology is actually a fantastic degree because it will give you frameworks by which you can approach those questions and understand those questions. So I think it can be good for well-being. I don't think it necessarily will be, but I think it can be because I think it, it can provide you with a kind of solace. In terms of philosophy, I'd say my answer is slightly different. Um, Philosophy with respect to careers, I think philosophy, there are certain careers that really philosophy does feed into very well. Uh, Law is the big one. Um, I think also uh, something like civil service. I think if, if you're... What philosophy teaches you to do is it teaches you to think with a lot of precision. It's... It's a very different humanity from any of the others. It values clarity and brevity and precision. Those are the virtues in philosophy. So you'll get very good at writing. You'll get very good at arguing. Every philosophy undergrad goes through an unbearably smug phase. And it's this phase where they kind of suddenly realise that most people argue very badly. Most people, when they're trying to justify themselves, do so pretty poorly. Most people have loads of kind of ideas that are pretty half-formed that get shunted together into these sort of Frankenstein monster kind of worldviews. And philosophy gives you the tools to really deconstruct that. And I think there is a danger with philosophy. It's twofold. First of all, it is tough and demanding and rigorous. So it does... You've got to be really sure you want to do it. You've got to be quite mathematical. You've got to... Because otherwise, like you said, it's a lot of money to waste on a kind of I'm vaguely interested in these questions. Um, But if you can do it, it's great. The other danger is I do think philosophy can turn people a bit nasty. I think it can make people intolerant and arrogant and believing that they really know a bit more than everyone else and they're a bit smarter than everyone else. So one advice, bit of advice I would have for any student who is doing philosophy is, is really guard against that. When someone says something that is a bit unpolished and half-baked, resist the urge to undermine it, and instead try and nurture that urge to find ways to support it, to augment it, to find where the gaps are, to try and find the real good in what people are saying. It's actually, it, you know, although the, although people are tend to be bad arguers, it's not true that most people are stupid or silly. Most people are really, really smart and really sincere. And just because you've kind of learned this discipline of being very precise in how you speak doesn't mean that everything anyone else says is sort of beneath contempt. So I, I would offer that. I mean, I, you know, I love philosophy, but I do think sometimes people can become a little bit cruel with it. And I would, I would go against that.
0: Because uh, I've started doing a lot of answer, answer the question with a question. And we just keep on, which is what you did to me, but we we do a lot of that now in sport, where it's just like, okay, if we're going to talk about the, you know the, what can you improve on or what's the issue or what's the problem or whatever you say, what's the challenge, and you go, "Well, let's ask ten questions, and then see where we go with that, because usually there's there's never really one answer. Yeah. And I think
1: that's... so. I mean, Aristotle famously said that the mark of an educated mind is being able to hold more than one point of view at the same time, and I think that's... We need more
0: of that. Um, Yeah. Mate, right there, I think that is... The, the, probably the greatest way to sign off on this is is to keep asking more questions good, good. and that is the golden nugget because it opens up better debate and, and uh, better dialogue doesn't yeah it? no so. brilliant
1: okay well thanks for that mate,
0: th- yeah mate thanks so much for chatting to me and um, it's been yeah it's been wonderful to have you on the pod so um, thanks very much